Now let's uh, read again from the Word of God. And uh, we'll read from the passage that we read uh, last Lord's Day, the prophecy of Hosea. The prophecy of Hosea, which comes after Ezekiel and Daniel. Ezekiel is a lengthy prophecy. That's followed by Daniel. And then you have the prophecy of Hosea. You'll remember that Hosea prophesied in the 8th century, especially against the kingdom of uh, Israel, but also uh, against the kingdom of Judah. And uh, here he's speaking about how God is going to deal with them. So we'll read from verse 10. Hosea chapter 5, and reading at verse 10. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by a human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb, yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offence. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction they will earnestly seek me. Come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. May God bless the reading of his word and we'll consider his word. In chapter 6 and in verse 1, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. So come and let us return to the Lord. And we began to study uh, this text last Sabbath day. It's one of the great texts of the Bible, certainly one of the great texts on repentance in the Bible. Come and let us return to the Lord. And this morning and tonight again, with God's help, I want to complete our study of this verse. Now, you'll remember that under the heading of repentance, there are four distinct themes in our text here, and they're they're there either explicitly or implicitly. 
And if we take those four things together, they give us a full picture of what repentance really is and how repentance works. And these four themes are, first of all, our sin. That's implicit because we're being asked to return to the Lord. So there's sin involved in that. The second theme is God's chastisement. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn. So there you have God's chastisement. The third theme is the repentance itself, our turning, in other words. Come and let us return or turn again to the Lord. And the fourth theme is God's healing. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. So let me just briefly repeat that. There's first our sin, then God's chastisement. There's our turning and God's healing. Our sin, God's chastisement, our turning and God's healing. Now, last week we looked at our sin. And of course, we looked at our sin as it's brought before us in the passage in the sins of Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, because Ephraim was the dominant tribe in the north. So Israel was leading the way in sin or turning away from God. Judah, sadly, instead of being warned by her example, actually follows her example. She is the kingdom in the south. And we saw the result that Israel was broken and oppressed by evil rulers. And that's a reference to her own rulers, um, rulers that she deserved herself, because God gave them the kind of rulers which they seemed to want deep down. Her sin is described here as willingly walking by a human precept, verse 11 there. In chapter 5, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment, so government is oppressing them, because he himself willingly walked by a human commandment. In other words, as a people, they just accepted, and they were happy to accept the replacement of God's law with human laws. They were happy to accept that replacement in their religion, which was corrupted, and in state two, human laws took the place of God's laws. And gradually, and interestingly for ourselves, the supposed liberty that they were chasing when they left God behind turned out to be a tyranny, a tyranny from government and a tyranny of life. Now, there's a deep lesson there, of course, but let's just leave it there for the moment. Judah is rebuked here because they remove the ancient landmarks, that's verse 10 of chapter 5. And again, we looked at that last Lord's Day, what moving the boundaries meant. And again, the people uh, were getting what they asked for. So they were a people who turned away from God, walking by human commands and moving away God's ancient landmarks. Now, this morning, I want to look at the second great theme in the text, the second constituent part of repentance, if you like, and that is 
God's chastisement. Our sin and now God's chastisement. <clears throat> now I'm conscious perhaps that I've again spoken fairly often of God's chastisement and some time ago looked at it in, in some detail, but still I think it's useful before we look at a theme like this to attempt just to give a brief definition of it, just so we know what we have in our heads before we examine it more closely. And I think it's right to say that essentially, essentially, chastisement is corrective discipline. It's corrective discipline. And I suppose both these words signify something important. First of all, uh, chastisement is a discipline. That word can be training too. But one of the ideas it carries, and it's an important idea, is the idea of pain and discomfort. Now, we know ourselves that training of any kind involves discomfort of some kind. And God's discipline involves pain and discomfort in our soul, in our body, or both, both. God can use afflictions in the soul and in the body when he chastises. And there are so many examples of that throughout scripture. Same is true with parental chastisement. Uh, A biblically driven parent will also chastise the soul and the body of the child. That is why recent legislation which forbids physical chastisement is anti-Christian and it is unbiblical. There is a place for physical pain in God's government. Now, the writer to the Hebrews says that no chastening is joyful, but painful. So God sends pain. God uses pain, pain in the body and pain in the soul, in order to chastise us. It's important to remember that because, of course, when we experience it, it's difficult. It's not joyful. It is painful, but God uses it. But second, of course, it's a corrective discipline. God's chastisement. Chastisement is a corrective discipline. In other words, its purpose is restorative. Its design is to make us fit for purpose. In other words, so that we become what we should be, that we become what we ought to have been. Because we haven't been that, or because we've fallen from something, God is now chastising us. As the writer to the Hebrews says again, uh, he says that chastisement is painful for the present, he says. But listen to this, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In other words, the fruit that comes out of it is the fruit of righteousness. And it's called a peaceable fruit here, I think, because it it brings God's peace back into our hearts. Sin always takes away God's peace. But the righteousness that chastisement produces brings back God's peace to those who have been trained or disciplined by it. So if we use God's chastisement well, if we kiss the rod, if we recognize it, as coming from him, we will be trained by it and it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness and how much we value that peace when it comes. 
It's only then sometimes that we realize how terrible it was to have lost it. Now, of course, that means that we're restored to God's favor and we're restored to his approval. The fact that we're chastised doesn't mean that God ceases to love us. Far from it. But it, it does indicate his disapproval, his severe disapproval. But then we are restored to his favor and his approval. So, of course, a chastisement is a mark of sonship. Our confession of faith teaches that, that it's one of the privileges we enjoy as children to be chastised. That may sound a rather strange thing to say, but you should be thankful for God's chastisement. It is a privilege of sonship. And uh, the truth is that we will never repent. Never. We will never repent without corrective discipline from God. God always uses corrective discipline as a means towards repentance. Now, the degree of it varies in his wisdom. And uh, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that that wisdom is perfect. He says, as fathers, we chastised our children as seemed best to us. In other times, sometimes we erred by chastising too little. Sometimes we erred by chastising too much. But he says, God chastises always for our profit. We intend the profit of our children, but God always secures it. He always administers discipline to the right degree. And how important it is, friend, to remember that. Uh, we mustn't despise the Lord's chastening, and we mustn't be discouraged when we are rebuked often. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says. Mustn't be discouraged because he knows exactly what to administer, how to administer it, and how long to administer it as the great physician of our souls. Now, it's very contempting, uh, very tempting to, to continue really on that theme simply as a theme and as a general study, but we need to sharply focus on our text. So let's do that. You'll notice that God's chastisement of uh, Israel and Judah here takes two forms. It comes in two stages, if you like. In verse 12, God says that he will be like a moth to Ephraim, and like rottenness to Judah. And then a little later on in verse 14, he says that he will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Now, there you have really what I mentioned a moment ago, that God administers his chastisement according to the severity of our sin. There's a huge difference between a moth in your life and a lion in your life. I don't need to expand on that. Common sense tells you that. It's a huge difference between a moth in your house and a lion in your house. So God administers his chastisements gradually according to the severity of our sin. As he sees it, notice, as he sees the severity of her sin, not necessarily as we see it. And one of the reasons we sometimes chafe against God's chastisements is because we think them too severe. 
But, but we don't understand that God judges the gravity of our sin. And uh, doubtless, the, the kind of chastisement that he gives you will gradually, just bit by bit, unfold to you the nature of that sin and the gravity of it. So here he is chastising for a prophet. Now, first of all, he comes like a moth to Ephraim or rottenness to Judah. Now, the rottenness to Judah is more or less the same as the moth to Ephraim. Rottenness, uh, the Hebrew word means decay, a decay that you can find anywhere, but perhaps especially in wood or something like that. We think of woodworm. Uh, the moth itself is essentially a worm which begins to devour, and the rottenness too is a worm that begins to decay. Now, I think there's meant to be a, a slight difference here and a deliberate difference because Ephraim, or the kingdom of Israel, is going to be corrupted more quickly. The house of Judah will be corrupted more slowly. Again, and this is God's chastisement. So the principal idea here is that God is somehow going to bring decay upon them as a people and as a nation. He's going to bring decay. Um, and the decay itself is gradual. In other words, there's two kinds of gradation here. You're graduating from a moth to a lion, but there's also a graduation in the way that the moth itself works. The, the first part of the chastisement, before the lion comes, is itself a gradual thing. The moth slowly corrodes. The worm, the woodworm, slowly corrodes over a long period of time. And at the point at which Hosea is speaking these words, Israel still has 40 years to go before the lion devours her. And Judah has around 160 years to go before the young lion tears her heart. That reminds us sometimes when we're looking at God's chastisement on our own uh, nation, our own covenanted nation, we need to look at generations, not simply at a year or two. If you think of 40 years in the story of our own land, that takes you back to the 1980s. To those of us who remember that, we remember a different society and very clear evidence of decay in that time. If you go back 160 years, which is the length of time given Judah, which is four times 40, you'll notice, uh, which is four times a period of probation, which is four generations, four times 40, takes you back to 1860. What kind of nation did we have in 1860 and what kind of nation do we have now? Well then, what is this decay that's inflicted by God? A moth to Ephraim, rottenness to Judah. Well, I think, I think it's safe to say that the first reference here is that God nibbles away, if you like, at the comforts and the luxuries and the wealth. Now, when Jeroboam II came to the throne in Israel, it was what many people would think of as a kind of golden age in the northern kingdom's history. It was just after Elijah's ministry 
And that, of course, famously followed Elijah's ministry. And Elijah and Elisha were both prophets who ministered in the northern kingdom, which was decaying, of course, more quickly than the south. And it's quite obvious that the labors of these two great men of God, the labors of Elijah and Elisha, made an impression upon the land. Now, significantly, they didn't change the government. They, they didn't change, it didn't influence the government, but it did, to a considerable extent, influence the people. And you'll remember when Elijah had the great confrontation with the, with the government and the officials of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel, when fire from God came on the altar, Jeremiah on the following day was profoundly depressed. And uh, he took that famous uh, journey down south to Beersheba and then to the cave in Mount Sinai because of his severe depression. And his depression was caused by the fact that Jezebel, he discovered, was still on the throne, or Ahab was still on the throne, and Jezebel with him in power. And he had thought, he had thought that the confrontation on Mount Carmel was a genuine sign that matters had changed and almost irrevocably changed, that there was true reformation in the land. And he was absolutely devastated to discover that that was not the result. But although it wasn't the result, we're not to think that it didn't do its work. There were 7,000 people at that point who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Um, Maybe there were less than that before that. Because the confrontation on Mount Carmel certainly affected people. It, it did work some change in the land. And Elisha's ministry only added to that. And so it's significant that with the next king on the throne, uh, or the next but one, God gave significant growth to the kingdom. It became a wealthy and a prosperous kingdom. But now God is saying that he is going to decay that wealth. He's going to bring decay. I, I made reference um, a few weeks ago now to uh, when God said to the people through Haggai the prophet, you have sown much, you bring in little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you're not filled. You clothe yourselves, no one is warm. The one who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. You looked for much, but it came to little. When you brought it home, God says, I blew it away. I blew it away. That's God bringing decay on what they've got. And uh, that's evident now, too. I don't think any of us are properly realizing the extent to which our own lifestyles will probably change now and the way in which our economy has been struck. Um, God has struck it. And those of you who don't see God at work in this virus, well, I'll say something about that in a moment. But the decay isn't just in connection with that. I think when God says he will be like a moth or like rottenness to Ephraim and Judah, he's eating away at their strength and their sense of security. Uh, In other words, he's eating away at them spiritually too. To the extent that these people lose courage, they lose resolve, they lose spirit, they lose confidence. And all of these things come from people when they stop following the Lord. 
and when they stop being on a right footing with him. The result is that they lose happiness too. I mean, it's strange to me that for a society that has for years and years been turning away from the Lord as something that's binding them and something that's harassing them and something that's stifling them or whatever, it astonishes me just how little happiness they seem to have. Rampaging in anger through the streets as their own humanism not brought them, the the happiness and the contentment that they were expecting. Has the sexual revolution and its liberties, has it not brought the happiness and the contentment that they were wanting? The result, you see, when there's a decay like this, when there's a moth and rottenness, the result is hollowness. You can go into a piece of wood where the woodworm has been working and it's fine till you touch it and there's nothing there. It's imposing enough on the outside, but it's hollow on the inside. And is our own society not hollow? Is it not just hollow like that? I often wonder myself if we were to be seriously attacked by any society in the world that isn't as hollow as ours, how easily would be pushed over? How easily? Hollow? Um, you know... <laughs> It's God that makes us substantial. It's God that makes us substantial as people. And it's God that makes a nation substantial. What godlessness does is it makes you insubstantial. It makes you hollow. It means that you might be imposing on the outside, but you're actually decaying on the inside. And the, and the truth is that we are a decaying nation in a united kingdom of decaying nations. That's what we are. Hollow, hollow. The moth has corrupted. The rottenness has set in. And it's God's judgment upon us. What effect did the moth have on Israel and Judah? Well, again, in chapter 5, we read there in verse in verse 12, I will be like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to Judah. So in verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and when Judah saw his wound or his decay. When Ephraim saw his sickness. Now, that obviously implies at least that they were not seeing it for a time. And the fact is that it can take some time to see that you're sick. And the Bible tells us elsewhere that it took some time for Ephraim to see his sickness. Hosea, in fact, tells us that. In chapter 7, he says this, and listen to it, how interesting it is. Foreigners have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Again, gray hairs are here and there upon Ephraim's head, but he does not know it. Foreigners devoured his strength. They, they haven't seen their cultural decay and their religious decay. They tried to conform themselves to uncovenanted nations, both in their worship and in their way of life. And they don't know that they've lost their strength before God. They don't know it. Gray hairs here and there upon his head. Some of us sadly know what that's like, to suddenly discover that they're there. And for a long time, maybe other people can see it, but you haven't seen it yourself. They haven't taken in the fact that they're corroding 
and decaying. They still feel they're what they always were, like Samson, when he got up and said, I will shake myself as I did before, but did not know that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. He didn't know it until, until he was put to the test, until he tried to flex his muscles as he had done before. He didn't know that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. The fact is that we can be oblivious to God's justice, man. We can be explaining it away and attributing what's happened to us to other causes, not seeing the hand of the Lord in it. Even We see that even with this astonishing virus that's come upon the world. People say things like, people who should know better, saying things like, well, it's just the result of the fall. It's just one of these things that happens because we're in a sinful world. Really? Is, is that the only explanation for this event at this time? If, if that's what everything is, and everything is that, certainly. Everything is a result of the fall and an outworking of the curse. But if that's how you're going to explain every single event, despite how extraordinary it is, then that means that you can never identify God at work as a moth, and you can never identify him at work as a lion. In other words, you will never identify any special chastisement that God is sending to an individual or to a nation or to a church. Never. It will always be only the result of the fall. What an absurd way to recognize this visitation from God. What an absurd way, I should say, to misread what's sent from us by God. And that brings me to your own life personally. Can you see your own corrosion? Can you see your own decay? Has God come and ruffled your nest? Has he come into your life in a particular way, and you can usually recognize it when it's accompanied by the proclamation of his own word. Are you recognizing him in events in your life? I mean, sadly, Isaiah says, Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they shall not see. They won't see it. But, but then he continues the sentence like this, Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they shall not see, but they will see and they will be ashamed for their envy of people. Now, isn't that interesting? It was their envy of other people that led them down the wrong path. And when God lifted up his hand in chastisement, they didn't see, but they did see afterwards and would be ashamed of how they just followed other people, maybe other people who even had the name of being believers or Christians. And you abhor yourself for what you allowed yourself to become. But of course, friends, it's a good thing if you're hearing God's voice in everything that's happened. And if you're applying it to yourself, and if you're learning to apply it to the nation, that is a good thing, and be encouraged by that. The terrible thing is when we're deaf and blind. So seeing our sickness can take some time. And, uh, you know, sometimes you may see a person who under the hand of God, and they don't realize that themselves. But you have to wait and be patient. Wait and be patient uh, until they come to see it. But what we read here is that when Ephraim saw, so he did see it, when he saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound. In other words, they recognized that there was something wrong with themselves. Their, their nations were decaying and they were running into difficulty internationally. 
So what do they do about it? Well, what's first of all significant is what they don't do about it, and that is seek the Lord's help. They don't do that. You would expect that to be the first port of call, but it's not. Sad to say it's sometimes not with ourselves too. Isaiah again puts it like this. The people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. The people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Why not? Why didn't they turn to God? Well, it's one thing to see a sickness. It's another thing to understand the reason for it. And it's quite clear at this point, while God is dealing with them like a moth or a worm, it's quite clear that they're they're only gradually seeing the sickness, but they're not asking why they're sick. If If they were, then doubtless they would seek the Lord. But all they're doing is trying to treat the symptoms. They're trying to treat the symptoms. And even to the extent that they did pray about it, it was only for dealing with the symptoms, not for the real cause. It's been striking myself over the last weeks and months, as it's no doubt struck you, or some of you anyway, that people still don't mention God. I mean, outside of our own circles and in the church of God, they don't mention God. Even in dealing with the symptoms, never mind the cause. There's no plea to him for a vaccine. There's no plea to him to heal our sickness and our society. We still wait for a word from our leaders. It, it really horrified me the other day when I heard in the House of Commons, uh, Boris Johnson announcing that pubs would be open and behind him on the benches. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't honestly say whether it was behind him or in front of him, uh, which side of the House of Commons it came from. And it doesn't really matter, because in this respect, all sides are the same. Hallelujah was shouted. Hallelujah, which of course means praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for open pubs, but closed churches. Who cares? Who cares? But if we don't know the cause of our sickness, we won't look to the Lord for the cure. We won't look to him for the cure. So what did they do? Well, we're told in verse 13 that when Ephraim saw his sickness, he went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. Now, Jareb here functions as a kind of nickname. The Old Testament mentions several Assyrian kings, Tiglath, Pileser, and Kul, and so on. Sargon. Uh, Their names are recorded elsewhere in history. Jerob is not. Uh, It's a nickname. Its meaning is actually the helper or the avenger. And I think there's a kind of irony there because instead of looking to the helper or the avenger, God, the helper, the comforter, they're looking to Assyria to be their help. Um, The reference here is particularly to King Manahem of Israel. The Israeli kings are not so well known because they change so often. Government became very unstable. But King Manahem of Israel went to Assyria to strengthen his own hold on his own kingdom. It's going to the superpower of his day and saying, look, um, if, 
if I if I'm as good to you as I can be, will you give us your protection? Can we come under your wing? And the result was a drastic tribute that uh, the Assyrian king uh, levied on Israel, and uh, the result was that the king um, put a very crippling taxation upon his own people. We're told that he extracted the money from them, and the word in the Hebrew means that. And it's almost akin to extortion, really. But it was a short reprieve. <laughs> it, it was a very short reprieve. Um, because the Assyrians who gave them protection were the actual Assyrians who started to oppress them. And when the Assyrians oppressed them, guess what Israel did? They looked to Egypt. Egypt. <laughs> a broken reed, as the prophet says. Lean on it if you want, but it'll snap under the weight of your hand. In other words, the answer lay in politics. It lay in economic treaties. It lay in human alliances and in allies in wartime. And I suppose in some ways the most staggering thing is that a, a good few years later, I think maybe about 70 or so years later, Judah followed exactly the same example. King Ahaz, uh, the father of godly Hezekiah, but he was an evil man himself. King Ahaz went to Assyria in order to strengthen him. But we're told that he strengthened him not. And of course, that's always what happens. The world will always let you down. At best, it'll let you down. At worst, it'll take you into bondage to itself. The staggering truth is that the Assyrians here, whom they look to for liberty, was the eventual conqueror of Israel who dispersed them to the four winds from which they still have not properly been regathered. The Assyrians too, to whom uh, Judah looked, nearly finished them off as a people were it not for God's last minute inter intervention. Um, the world will always let you down. In fact, God is the only one who won't. He's the only one who won't. Look at Judas Iscariot, how disappointed he was with Christ eventually because he wasn't giving him what he wanted himself, which was worldly aggrandizement and glory. He was so disappointed. So he went back to the rulers to find favor with them. And he betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. But when he saw his sickness and when he saw his wound, he went back to them, back to them with the money. And what was the response? What's that to us, they said. You see to it yourself. We don't care. We have got out of you what we wanted to get out of you. You look after yourself. That's the world. And that sin never heals you, always disappoints you. And if you find that God is decaying something that you have, and, and if he's taking something away, don't look to pleasure, don't look to amusement, don't look to business, don't look to anything, but look to the Lord. Look to the Lord for explanations and make sure that you yourself are walking in righteousness and, and the Lord will show you and he will turn things around. Now, um, it's worth saying that not going to God with your chastisement aggravates your sin. It, it just adds to your original sin. The failure to 
I mean, when God shows you what it is, the failure to go to him with it just aggravates what you've done. And it provokes, it provokes the Lord. Listen again to what Isaiah says. Listen, I'll just read it. Woe to the rebellious children who take counsel, but not from me, and who devise plans, but not from my spirit, who go down to Egypt, but have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. That's all it is. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. You will be ashamed of a people who could not benefit you, but who will be your shame and your reproach. The other thing is, don't misinterpret God's patience with you as though he wasn't displeased with you. That's the thing about God's chastisement. Sometimes when it doesn't come maybe as heavily as you expect, you say to yourself, well, maybe he's not really that displeased. Just like we sang in the psalm, joining with the thief or joining with the adulterer. God says, because I kept silence, you thought I was like you. In other words, you approved of that. You made excuses for that. So you thought I made excuses for that and that I approved of it. Then God warns them lest he tear them in pieces. Don't misinterpret God's patience. He is slow to wrath. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when a moth is nibbling at you, that's the time to put it right. Don't wait for a lion to devour you. But then... That takes us to the second thing here. Um, We're moving away from the gradual decay to the heavy stroke. Verse 14 of chapter 5, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. Again, I think there's a deliberate distinction here. A fierce lion to Ephraim, which is what the word lion here actually means, and a young lion to Judah. Her blow, although terrible, is lesser than Ephraim's blow. So when he comes like a lion, he'll tear them. And as it said here, he will go to his place. I, even I, this is verse 14, will tear them and go away. I shall take them away. No one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge my offense. So to complete the picture here, uh, let's say first that God leaves his place to tear them, and then he returns to his place. Now, what does the prophet mean by that? Well, leaving his place is just a way of saying that God is coming down to visit the earth. He's coming down to visit the earth. And that means that he's coming either with a special blessing or with a special judgment. We're to understand figures of speech here. It doesn't mean that God leaves heaven or anything like that. These are figures of speech. To to come and to visit and then to depart to his place means that he's coming either in a way of special blessing and special judgment and then removing himself. For example, in the book of Genesis, when the the people um, organized a rebellion, in building the city of Babylon and its tower, the Tower of Babel, we're told that God came down to see 
whether what they were doing was according to the cry that reached him in heaven. Now, there's a heavy anthropomorphism there. We can all recognize it. He came down to see. In other words, it carries the idea of a special examination. He, he is a fair judge. He comes down to see. In other words, he comes down to deal with it. When God is pictured as coming down, he's not just seeing something. He's dealing with it. Dealing with it. The same, the same was true of Sodom. He came, I'm sorry, actually, I mixed that up because when he, when he came to deal with uh, Babylon, it doesn't say there that he came down to hear whether the cry was according to what it was. I mixed that up. He simply came down and he came down to deal with it. But when he came down to Sodom, we're told, or he says himself, that he came down to see whether the state of it was according to the cry that reached him in heaven. And again, it's to deal with it. So when God leaves his place, it's to deal with something, either to specially bless or to specially judge. Again, Isaiah says, behold, the Lord comes, listen to this, behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. So it's a special visitation. He comes down from his place to tear like a lion. This is a reference to the deportation of Israel out of the northern kingdom and its resettling with other peoples. And it's a reference to the deportation of the people of Judah later to the land of Babylon. They were torn as a people. Anguish, siege, hunger, thirst, violence. And after that, God says that he's going away. He's going away. Verse 15, I will return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. What does it mean, God, going away? Why does it emphasize going away? I mean, usually it only emphasizes him coming down to do the work. But why does he emphasize going away? Well, the reason is may be fairly obvious in a way, but it's very, very solemn. It means that he's leaving his people. Not totally, of course, not finally, but he's leaving them in such a way that he's not going to come to their relief. He's not going to give them tokens of his mercy or of his kindness. He's going to be a silent God. Um, as Christ said on the cross, when, when he was getting no relief, why hast thou forsaken me, he said. He's not asking why he's going through the pain and the difficulty, but why he's getting no relief. Why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, and here, God is saying that he's going to forsake his people. Now, I think I said this recently, but pe people often say that God never forsakes his people. And there's a sense, of course, in which that's true, a very important sense. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But that means that he will never utterly leave us nor forsake us. Never utterly. But, but he does leave and forsake us in a lesser sense. For example, um, God says through Isaiah the prophet, chapter 54, listen to this. He's talking to his own people. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies I will gather thee. 
these are wonderful words, but they're very, they're very sad and solemn too. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies I will gather thee. And then he, he expands on that, or he further defines it with a little wrath, relatively little wrath. I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. But this forsaking, this little wrath, as he calls it, is an awful experience. It's when the moth has done its work. And when God is weary with striking, he tears. He tears. It means there's no sense of God in your soul and in your life. You're so grieved because God is nowhere near. And at times it's like a, a soul that is dead. Dead. But praise God, even the tearing of the lion has a good purpose in view. Because he says, I will go again to my place. I'll return again to my place until they acknowledge their offense. I'll turn back until they turn back. I'll turn away until they turn towards me. That takes us tonight to our turning and God's healing. I had originally intended to deal with them separately, but now I'll just deal with them together. Our turning. I mean, there's our sin. That's God's chastisement. Now, our turning. And God's healing tonight. We'll look at these with his help. May God bless our meditation on his word. Let's now sing.